turn off the... Alright, welcome everyone to the UK Sangha. Um, it is Wednesday and uh, we meet every week here and there's no real structure to these meetings. We just, uh, we talk about, um, we share insight, we talk about any questions that might arise um, as pertaining to the Dhamma. So um, we don't talk about um, normal things. Uh, we just talk about things through the perspective of the Noble Dhamma. So that's one uh, thing to understand about these Sangha calls is that it's um, anything that is brought up is going to be examined <laughs> through the lens of the Noble Dhamma and uh, what Dhamma we can learn from it and continue to practice from. Um, so with that being said, if anyone has anything they'd like to talk about um, that might uh, bring up some good conversation or simply you want to share how your practice is going, it's all free, free game from here on. Uh, yeah, okay, that's well, great. First, so, uh, oh, go for it. Yeah. Oh, do we have a question? Sorry, I. No, you, you're oh, gonna you, go. Yeah. Okay, you said that's great. I, w I wondered if you were replying to something else. Okay. No, no. no. Uh, I, I was just gonna say um, that introduction you gave gave me the thought. Well, all things are kind of targets for the Dhamma, so in a sense, we could talk about anything <laughs> in that lens. You know, but exactly. kind of a side thought. No, exactly. Everything is, uh, everything relates to the Dhamma because the Dhamma is everything. Like the Dhamma um, is the natural law of things. Or um, so the full, so the Buddha says the full, like the full fruition of the Dhamma or what this is all leading to or the full comprehension of the Dhamma is uh Yata Buddha Dasna. So uh, this translates to knowledge and vision of things as they are. So this is the full culmination of uh, what the Dhamma is leading to, is just a completely um, realistic view um, of things arising and passing away without, uh, without any delusion. Um, misunderstanding what's really going on here and uh, creating all kinds of problems and uh, um, cravings and attachments and all sorts of that kind of stuff that uh, really just comes from uh, a misunderstanding, a root misunderstanding of the way that things are. So yes, Dhamma pertains to literally everything. Um, and uh, I think that's one of the biggest um, transitions in the evolution of someone's uh, spiritual development is uh, um, this uh, meditation or this practice or this um, um, spiritual contemplation. It goes from being something that you do as a hobby, maybe like for an hour a day or here and there uh, when you think about it, to something that uh, 
you do when it, every single moment that you possibly can remember to do it. So it, uh, the practice becomes, um, I'm not going to say that like now every moment you're practicing because sometimes you're forgetting, but every moment that you remember to practice, you're practicing or seeing the Dhamma or uh, understanding the Dhamma uh, or comprehending the Dhamma in, in every moment. And uh, that's kind of like what, uh, that's that's the only way that you're going to put like a, a um, some damage in like the habits of ignorance because um, you're literally retraining um, your perceptual system or the way that you think about things um, from one that produces ignorance to one that produces wisdom. So, uh, because these habits um, of the mind are so, so, uh, so deeply ingrained habitually that uh, this is, this is what we have been, uh, the way that we've been thinking about things for so long has been uh, filled with all kinds of delusions um whether it's nature or nurture doesn't really matter so whether it comes from uh some inherent quality of how the brain functions or whether it comes from what we were taught it doesn't really matter because it can be re reprogrammed so uh but i either way it's it's a a, a set of habits or a set of functions that uh, when um, asleep to kind of run amok and uh, make your life um, unsatisfactory and even uh, miserable <laughs> if, if we want to take it to the extreme. So uh, there's a lot of fruit and there's a lot of benefit in uh, waking up to um, um, really the source of our own suffering, um, which is the second noble truth. Um, and uh, in, any anything that we say about the Dhamma is going to be um, kind of really simple because it's really just going to have to do with the four noble truths. And there's different like fun, quirky ways we can talk about the four noble truths, but at the end of the day, if we're talking about the Dhamma, we're talking about the Four Noble Truths. And uh, even shorter than that, uh, Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda. So uh, one thing that I, I've been thinking about a lot recently is uh, people mistake um, the teachings of the Buddha to be in ontology. So um, rather than a means uh to the to liberation or it means to the end of suffering so um this is a really common mistake because all other religions and all other spiritual um practices ha usually have an ontology that goes along with it and what is an ontology an ontology is a statement about reality um the absolute fabric or the absolute nature of reality in terms of its like um, primary existence. 
So uh, an ontology, for example, would be it's all dead, uh, inert Newtonian matter that's just collide like marbles colliding into each other, and that's what reality is. Or it's all um, Vish, it's all God Vishnu dream. It's it's Vishnu dreaming up a conscious entities, and it's all consciousness. Um, that's an ontology. We've talked about in the past few calls the difference between why and how, and ontology would be asking all the why questions. When you, like you said, it doesn't matter if this is nature or nurture. It doesn't matter why we're dissatisfied. The fact is that we are dissatisfied and there's a solution to that problem. I would say um, it doesn't matter. There is a reason why we're dissatisfied, but the ultimate source of... Um, why it's set up this way is not um is not spent time worrying about so like um we don't spend like mental energy at, at least in the uh, i think ontologies are very fun to think about so it's fun to entertain um what the ultimate source of the universe is um uh but uh, at the end of the day, um, we're just going to be encountering um, inescapable limitations to what we can know for certain. So um, there's some things that we'll never be able to prove or know absolutely for certain. Like, uh, is there an external reality or is it just in conscious experience internally? But uh, so that's that's in the realm of ontology, and um, the Buddha didn't teach ontology. Advaita teaches ontology. Um, Christianity teaches ontology. Every other religion teaches ontology, but the Buddha simply taught suffering and the end of suffering, with no claims about about uh, any other. Um, source or fabric of reality um and then uh so everything is experiential um and uh and we can examine uh the experience that we have access to and we can see uh certain patterns and emergent properties of our experience as uh kind of predictable in the same way we can discover the laws of nature and and so like we drop in we drop a water bottle over and over we can safely assume that um if i hold this water bottle and i open my hand the water bottle is going to fall um so the dhamma is similar to that kind of uh approach to um how dukkha operates and works is that we learn the inner mechanics of how dukkha arises and also the mechanics of how uh, dukkha comes to an end. And then we can uh, make a prediction about how it's going to operate in, in every given moment and in the future and pay attention when it is taking place. Mm -hmm. So I can I can safely predict that if I think uh, if I continue to ruminate 
um, angry thoughts, um, unwholesome thoughts. So thoughts of revenge, thoughts of uh, people who aren't there, um, thoughts of uh, things that annoy me, things that piss me off in the world. I can safely assume um, because of uh, my experiential um, understanding that the next moment that arises after having those thoughts will be kind of uh, a hellish state. So <laughs> it's really simple, right? Cause and effect. I, I open, I, I do this, that happens. So <laughs> this is uh, fundamental to the teaching of the Buddha. That's pretty much what uh, origination means. With this, there's that. And uh, with the cessation of this, there's the cessation of that. Um, so um, understanding really what, uh, what we're doing that causes our, our suffering, um, it requires a great deal of, uh, of sati, of remembering to do it, and a, and a great deal of paying attention. And that would be mindfulness, but not blind my, mindfulness. So not just paying attention without figuring out how it works. So that, I think that's the main difference between um, a lot of the Western meditation and noting practices and a lot of the um, popular mindfulness like fad is that people, they're like, oh, I just have to concentrate on, on the breath or pay attention uh, to what's happening. But they don't try to figure out how the four noble truths work so you're just paying attention and you're suffering but you're not figuring anything out about the suffering so paying attention is only one aspect to it so you pay attention and then you learn so um it's like someone who it's it's like studying um it's such a good example if you're reading if you're studying for a test and you're just reading each page, but you're not actually, uh, you're like, oh, I'm studying for the test, but you read every single page and learned absolutely nothing. You, it's like you, an athlete who goes to practice every day uh, for years and years and years, and they think merely by going to practice, they're gonna get better at the sport. That's not how it works. There needs to be, there's not some, magical clock somewhere counting how long you've been practicing yeah the reality of it is is that the mind is malleable and if you do the same thing over and over again you're just going to be doing the same thing over and over again there has to be some active effort and some investigation and some skin in the game in changing the habits of the mind right and now the uh insight practices uh they do have this, some of them do, in the sense that once you gain insight, that there is the effort to take some effort and relax and see what's happening in the mind. But a lot of them just have the idea of just relax and do nothing and just suffer. And at some point, you're going to be enlightened. At some point, something's going to click with little direction on how to make things click. And what uh, is important to emphasize is that there is effort necessary. That it's not just uh, either, there are two, two ends of the extreme. There's just the uh, 
do nothing, uh, concentrate, uh, do that effort, and sometimes you'll be enlightened. And then there's the other end of the extreme of, oh, just don't worry, be happy, but the person's really suffering inside. That we need to recognize the hindrances uh, and actively take the effort to throw them out. That we don't just say we're happy. Uh, we see that thought of not being happy and genuinely see it and change the mind to a satisfied state and be satisfied. And now at first when we're starting, we'll repeat these things and there'll be the thought, this isn't really happy. I'm not really happy. I'm lying to myself. Uh, so we, we need to find thoughts that really get us satisfied, thoughts of that really scratch that itch of being satisfied, maybe some positive memory of a wholesome moment, and then start repeating that. Uh, uh, I know some crowds talk about meta thoughts being a uh, place to start. Um, I, I would say, so um, another way to put it is that it's a cost-benefit analysis of every thought action feeling um state of mind that we uh that we um encounter whenever so, we remember so yeah yeah so is this thought so you ask yourself hmm is this thought worth having <laughs> it's a good question to ask yourself like um what is there any practical use to this thought what is it doing for me it, is this thought a necessary function is it helping me is it um, saving me from anything? Is it uh, is it beneficial in any way? And then, so you can really ask yourself this realistic question, and the answer is for most of them, no, it's not. So, in the same way, we have um, something that is useless, um, and it's cluttering up our space. The simple solution to that is to just simply throw it out. And uh, you, you can do this with your thoughts. So you have a thought. <laughs> it's kind of a, it's not a wholesome thought. It has no practical benefit. The, the cost is greater than any benefit. So uh, the rational thing to do is get rid of it. And uh, you can do this with every, every action as well as thought. So cost-benefit analysis. Is this action, is this speech, is it going to cause me more dukkha then it's going to relieve and so you get you start to learn quick that uh, yes. a lot of the things that we do um the costs are much greater than the benefit that we're actually getting from them so it's not kind of it's not like a moral um imperative it's not like a oh to be a good like you better no, it's see for yourself yeah it's see for yourself and it's not like a there's not a priest judging you if you didn't do it. Um, it's none of that like religious like dogma. It's strictly cost-benefit analysis. Yes, Veda, you've, you've had your hand up. Uh, question? Yes. Um, what would be a good uh, advice for someone joining a more religious buddhism oriented sangha with all the problems associated with it in comparison to the supramundane dharma um i i personally i've never joined like a religious uh sangha group um i would just say come to me come to this this sangha 
Um, the if you're not if you're not finding real dhamma, uh, you can find it here. So uh, just send them my way. That's what I would say to those people. And additionally, uh, <laughs> it might vary on the core, be very ordinary, but there might be some uh, wise people there who know what's up. Uh, <laughs> I visited a lot on um, uh, last Sunday, and Sunday is the popular day. Uh, it was a Cambodian Wat, and it was one monk, and 30 or 40 lay people. Uh, uh, I think it was Lao, not Cambodian. Uh, Lao folks. Uh, and it was just a big party uh, and uh, very ordinary, very ritualistic. they giving their donations. They have these little trees with dollar bills on them uh, and all of this sort of thing. And uh, that monk there who's giving the speech while all these lay people do all their ordinary things, uh, I can't say whether or not he's noble or ordinary, but he could very well be noble. And he just has no way or doesn't care enough to fix all these ordinary people. Or even if he tried, they might just get angry that people are very attached to rituals. And so in the same way, uh, if you go to uh, ordinary Buddhist wad of some kind, that's probably most of the lay people, especially if it's Southeast Asian, um, that Westerners coming to Buddhism come from a different perspective than uh, Asian folks, because they've grown up in the culture. Uh, this was talked about, I was reading a little bit of Ajahn Chah's uh, uh, biography written by Ajahn Jayasaro, uh, and he made the point that Western monks are a lot, he likes to have Western monks compared to Thai monks, because Thai monks, uh, really the water is flowing in the state of wanting to go to the the monastery and becoming a monk. The parents would be really happy. It's really good merit for them if their kids become monks, uh, that they'll get a good rebirth or whatever is going on in their mind. They would like their son to be a monk, and they're pushed. It's the exact opposite in the West, especially, uh, what, 50 years ago when a lot of, like, Ajahn Samedo and that that crew was becoming monks. They had to leave the U.K., uh, go to Southeast Asia and become a monk. What do you think their parents thought about it? <laughs> they have to put in some serious effort and intention to do that. Um, so they're probably willing to apply themselves more and really listen to what the teacher Ajahn Chah has to say and apply it. Um, so your original point was about um, how to go into these places, go in with an open mind and investigate. And when you see, uh, when one sees these ritualistic behaviors, um, not to take them as something to fear, something to be averted to, just take them as this. This appears to be some superstitious behavior. Uh, and that noble folks, wise folks, are not completely opposed to superstitious behavior. They're just not attached to them. They're not clinging to them. They might still go along with this because it'll create unnecessary social friction for other folks who are attached. Right. Yeah. Um, I think uh, it's a lesson. It's a lesson in not jumping into the sea, saving people who are struggling because you don't have don't have enough. Uh, how do you say like um, 
um, those those swimming rings. You know what I mean? Lifesavers. Yeah. Lifesavers. Yeah. What we're specifically talking about here is the um, the third fetter of Silabata Paramasa, clinging to rites, rules, and rituals, uh, and. We can see this in a non-religious perspective as well, that a lot of societies just cling to rights, rules, and rituals, superstitious things that'll think, uh, that they think are good to do or valuable to do in some way, but they're really just doing them because they're clinging and they're superstitious. They're not investigating based on reality. Uh, and so if we try to save society from that, <laughs> there's no way we're going to lose. And if we really want society to change, we're just going to be left dissatisfied. Right. I think, uh, um, so if you go like the monk route, if you want to go and immerse yourself in that, uh, um, there's a lot of resources. I know that definitely Domerado knows a lot more about that. Um, but me personally, I'm a lay person. Um, so I teach from a layperson's perspective, and I think the noble dhamma um, historically has been kind of hidden away from the lay people. So I think it's good that it's kind of uh, breaking out, and uh, to realize that you can practice the noble dhamma and not um, as a layperson. So you don't need to become a monk. You certainly can, and the monks, and they have a value, a real value for our society. So it, there is real value in uh, a certain amount of the population um, going away from the family life, going away from home life, and completely just immersing themselves in the spiritual pursuit. And uh, this is yeah. a really good point that you make. And I think most Westerners who come to the Dhamma get caught up in this and that I need to become a monk and all of these sort of thoughts. But an ordinary way to look at it, uh, or a world from looking at it from a worldly perspective and a noble perspective, uh, becoming a monk is just another profession. You wear a different outfit. Uh, instead of making income to go buy food at the store, you get the food from people who donate it. And there are various costs or benefits and pros to different professions. Uh, and like you're mentioning, Scott, uh, monks, uh, as a role in society can be very beneficial. It can be sort of an example for people, uh, especially um, that sort of, uh, I was listening to Santi Caro talk about this a while ago, That the, and Buddha Dasa mentioned something similar, that the monk's ideal role in a society is a, an example of what is a wise, noble person. Uh, and then, and this doesn't mean that at all, that by being a lay person, uh, you cannot meet this example. It's just you're living with different clothes. You uh, find your food in different ways uh, and things like this. But those are merely circumstantial, logistical. Yeah. Um, um, there is certainly value in um, uh, sort of uh, a life of... Uh, just uh, taking yourself self out completely from uh, the worldly winds. So um, if you become a monk, it's kind of like uh, you can take complete uh, refuge in the Sangha and in the Dhamma. Um, 
um, both like internally and externally. So you're not uh, involving yourself with money. So that that kind of like takes a lot of like uh, of hindrances that um, would normally arise due to uh, the problem of money out of the equation. So it's kind of just like a um, a, a more like accelerated pursuit in the Dhamma, but um, <laughs> not to say that uh, it isn't possible to find refuge in uh, the Buddha, the Sangha, and the Dhamma, uh, and still be uh, involved with the world and be involved with money. Um, it just, uh, um, there's just going to be more complications that arise due to, uh, Due to those things one has to have stronger mindfulness and be awake more often whereas a monk if you're living the life of a monk with a bunch of other wise folks there's less to uh investigate uh yes uh yeah keep going so uh, what i'm saying is like uh the end result um so the end results of um, purifying the mind and developing a noble mind and uh, uh, becoming a noble yourself. Um, um, the nobility is the same if you are a monk or a layperson. So it really the world needs it, the world benefits from the more noble people there there are. Um, so uh, if there's people going away to become noble with just taking out the obstacles, that's of benefit to society. Um, it's just that as a layperson, there's um, maybe more um, uh, apparent obstacles to becoming a noble. But I, especially before the Internet and especially right. uh, before Dhamma books were widespread, that how was one going to get these teachings in the time of the Buddha without talking to monks very often? Uh-huh, right. Yeah, so now we have access to, I mean, I have, we have privileged access to a Thai forest lineage teacher that I can literally call whenever I want and uh, get a uh, close relationship with and close, cl close uh, consulting with, and that has been the main um, driver of my practice and my uh, knowledge of the Dhamma. And uh, now I just feel, um, uh, as I continue to learn, um, I, I feel a sense of gratitude of paying it forward um, to speak about things, things that are so powerful and so life-changing um, completely for free because they were spoken to me completely for free. So it has, so in, in that sense, it's secluded from uh, money, um, these types of meetings, um, it's kind of like an oasis from the world because um, it's only has to do with friendship. It has nothing to do with money. It has nothing to do with uh, um, gain and loss, pleasure and pain. It just has completely to do with talking about uh, um, the Dhamma and talking about the way things are and uh, the path leading to um, the cessation of suffering and uh, um, the mastery of of uh, those truths and and mechanics in our day to day um, lives, and uh, 
um, it's kind of like a way of life or a, a way of living that uh, it takes the anxiety, the fear, um, the existential dread out of life because um, it's so reliable. So um, once you discover these uh, these truths for yourself through your own practice, um, that's kind of like uh, that's kind of like what guides you. Um, and I can't imagine this changing for the rest of my life. So it, there is like a kind of like a, a a safety, a security in that in the Dhamma, a, a refuge certainly. Um, from the sways and the and the dangers and the worries of the world and um, all the the dukkha of samsara or the <laughs> the churning of the wheel. Yeah, Veda, go for it. Are flaws in the foundation of the practice eradicable? Okay, so what do you mean by that? Are flaws in the foundation of the practice? If people are, let's say, in something like McDonald's of Buddhism, Kadampa, oh, okay, something okay. like this, yeah. and they learn so they have the stuff some, and they associate with the stuff. Yeah, so they have some sort of like root misunderstanding that they've been practicing yes. that hasn't been working. Mm -hmm. um, no, um, never mind, start again. So <laughs> that can applies, never mind, start again applies to everyone, even if you've been meditating all sorts of wrong ideas for 10 years. So um, that person, I would teach them just the same as someone who's uh, never encountered um, any meditation practice at all. So the, the, the fact of the matter is that they've just accumulated bad habits and misunderstandings. So someone who who learns meditation wrong is the same bad habit or misunderstanding. Um, it might be slightly better than just normal, like worldly, uh, worldly misunderstandings. But um, it's the same bad habits and misunderstanding, and the way that you change it is the same. So it, it is impermanent and it can't change. So understanding that. Um, it doesn't matter if you've been doing the same thing over and over for years and it and it feels like uh, it's just intrinsic to yourself. Um, that in and of itself is a misunderstanding uh, about the nature of self and the nature of permanence. And uh, that uh, you, in fact, can change uh, completely your state of mind. And you can change, no matter how deep in dukkha you are, you can simply, uh, you can simply change it and it is possible for anyone to change it. And um, um, you might think, oh, it's a chemical imbalance or something. <laughs> you can change a chemical <laughs> imbalance. So the chemicals in your brain are constantly changing, right? Um, the brain builds new neurons. The brain can produce new pathways. The brain, so even if you think about it from a scientific point of view, the chemicals in your brain can change. Um, and it is, and it is uh, top-down processing. So it is kind of like an internal family system of the adult um, waking up to these things and nurturing from the top down and uh, leading the way um, so that the, the more like uh, 
instinctual like childlike mechanisms of our minds and our feeling feeling systems are um, reorganized and uh, uh, reprogrammed by the by the adult of your mind. So the one who wakes up to what's going on, who looks, wait a second, this isn't wholesome. And the one who can see, uh, who can discern, the one who can discern what is and isn't wholesome is uh, um, sort of the inner adult that can change the deeply, um, the deeply rooted patterns uh, uh, that we may have developed or acquired. So um, it is possible for anyone to do this at any stage, any level, any progress, any any part of your life, um, because it is the brain is impermanent and it can develop new pathways and it can heal itself and it can change uh, the chemical balance in your brain. You can uh, hack the system to be producing more dopamine and more uh, more serotonin, if you want to think about it that way, um, simply through um, how we breathe, how we breathe and how we think. Um, change how we breathe, it literally changes our chemistry and uh, change how we think. Um, it changes um, our, 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 our neural pathways as well. Um, and they're doing a lot of studies on this, uh, the, the science, scientific like uh, studies on people who haven't attained to like uh, meditative uh, feats or um, being able to enter meditative states. And uh, they're looking at what what is the brain look like um, for these types of people and what's the differences from a, a normal state or a, a more unpleasant state. And uh, uh, I think there's uh, there's some cool stuff that's probably going to come out of that. But I, th the point is that um, uh, everything about the body and the brain and and the self is constantly changing every moment, and it's uh, it's never the same. It's always in a flux. Everything is impermanent, so <laughs> nothing is ever doomed to be a certain way that's a misconception about re the the way we the natural law of reality how reality functions mm -hmm. that you that one can develop an attitude of i have no free will i can't do anything about this it's a chemical imbalance these sort of thoughts and there might be some truth to some of them but the point of it is that it's a narrative and that uh, i encourage anyone who has these thoughts to investigate it, to play with it, see if there's any holding on to this narrative. What does it feel like to let it go and change the narrative for a little bit? Mm. Change the narrative to, I can do this. Even if it feels completely out of the ordinary that you can't do this, yeah, try play it. around with it. Try it. <laughs> Just a what, hypothesis. I mean, what do you have to lose to try thinking about things differently? Thinking, yeah, I can do it. I can change. And, uh, 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 the thing is that um, the only reason you can't change is because you think you can't. And you can't change if you think you can't. It's a uh, simple cause and effect. Um, uh, uh, so just understanding that it's um, 
the internal processing that makes us suffer, not what actually happens, is the main thing. So there is a stimulus, um, and then there is the processing of that stimulus. And the processing is where uh, where there may be um, unskillful, uh, uns unskillful um, interpretations. So everyone is um, going to experience dukkha. The fact that they're alive that means that they're going to experience dukkha. That's the first noble truth. We're on a cycle of birth and rebirth here in this life. Uh, and then um, the way that we interpret dukkha or the way that we understand dukkha is going to um, is going to either uh, disallow the discovery of uh, the other noble truths past the first one, or just keep you at the first noble truth of, yeah, this sucks and I'm suffering. Um, so if we interpret things like, like, uh, yeah, <laughs> like a lot of people think that that's what the Buddha taught is that um, all life is suffering and there's like every, all, all of it suffering. But uh, no, um, actually, sukha is the opposite of dukkha, and uh, sukha is a skill to to be developed. So it has been developed by other people, and you can do it too. Um, first-hand experience, um, I can I've developed the skill through the practice of the Dhamma to literally experience more sensations, like real sensations of comfort and real sensation sensations of relaxation and happiness and then out of that um uplifted joy arises so so uh um sort of like uh uh sometimes even rapturous so just uh enlivening uh stuff it's like the juice the the stuff that um, exhilarates you, the stuff that makes you feel alive, the stuff that feels like feels like new life, feels like youth, feels like uh, spring. Um, and uh, that uh, is another skill and or another aspect of the practice. And then all of this stuff is impermanent. And then you come into even more tranquil states of mind and um, um, develop even more insights about how the mind functions because you're not wasting all this time uh, um, griping and, <laughs> griping to yourself and having a pity party. Um, so like once you stop wasting all that time uh, with your internal pity party or griping, uh, you can actually see clearly what's going on from a kind of unbiased uh, perspective, uh, just uh, completely um completely um rid of barriers or unaffected by uh by any um likes or dislikes so you can see how it is instead of liking it or disliking it and uh when you see how it is um you're just going to understand the four noble truths um that even that much more so you understand uh the arisal of dukkha and the cessation of it and how these two things come into being or come in 
or... Veda, your original thing was about uh, the foundations of practice, and if they are off, uh, can one develop the practice correctly? Um, it might be helpful to talk about what actually are the foundations of practice, because that would um, help with understanding how they develop correctly. And by that definition, we can look at a sort of practice, and if it meets those foundations, then yes, and otherwise no. I'd say that probably um, the most simple way of looking at it is one, waking up, becoming aware, looking, seeing what's going on. And two, the effort of letting go. And there's the booger on the finger. Now you see it, you need to flick it off because it's sticky. There needs to be some effort in flicking the booger off. And so those two things, the waking up to wanting to type the email and being scared of what if I don't send this email right now, I need to do it and letting go of I don't need to send the email right now. I can be satisfied right now. And maybe I can go send the email because I think it's a wise thing to do and I can do so happily. But the need, the thirst, the craving for sending the email isn't there anymore. And so that's the practice. Sending the email is one example of a thought that many people can relate to. But there are even grosser things and even more subtle things as one develops a skill of flicking the, bigger, flicking the booger off their finger. Yeah, so uh, um, there's obvious unwholesome thoughts and then there's unwholesome thoughts that kind of slip under the radar or they go unnoticed to the, to the untrained mind because it seems like a run-of-the-mill thought, like, um, it's like without... if you were cleaning the bathroom uh, and when you're cleaning a sink there's sort of crevices of dirt and you need like a toothbrush or something special to get in there because the rag won't do it enough there's like that, those dirt in those areas so there needs to be extra effort and we need to be uh, extra aware uh, to clean out those dirty areas if that makes sense mm -hmm. yeah uh... so <laughs> Yeah, like I'm trying to come up with just like a practical example of um, an unwholesome thought that um, might not seem unwholesome at first, like like uh, like oh, I got to do this tomorrow. Um, so like thinking that thought, it doesn't it doesn't help you do the thing that you need to do tomorrow. It's kind of just a thought that comes up. It kind of makes you feel restless or anxious. So it has no utility. It's unwholesome. Um, where you may be uh, reminiscing about a past relationship or something, and you think, oh, I'm just like appreciating the good times. But you're really you're thinking about something that isn't here. So you're fabricating a narrative, you're fabricating uh, uh, a memory of this person that isn't even that person. Um, that's a good example. It's like, um, it may seem like wholesome, like maybe like you're appreciating something about that person, but really you're bringing up old emotions. You're bringing up, uh, you're bringing up craving and you're bringing up all sorts of, uh, stuff that, uh, prevents you from being satisfied right now and right here. Um, um, because in actuality, um, that person isn't in this room. Um, so thinking about them is kind of just 
fabricating an idea of them rather than that actual person, the experience of that person. So um, this is a good way to approach life, to, um, to have a completely like existentially unfabricated view of life. So you don't think about things that aren't there is another way to put it. All that there is, is this experience happening right now. And there's only these people on this phone appearing uh, in my hands. And there's only this room as I experience it right now. And anything else is going to be a present experience, but it's going to be a fabricated um, concept about um, past or future experiences, which is arising in the moment. But um, we forget that it is just a fabrication that it isn't actually the real thing. The real thing is um, all that the real thing will ever be is this. Um, so to come into, um, to really come into the experience of, of now uh, and start to uh, enjoy it, you know? And um, most of the time what prevents you from enjoying it or prevents you from finding some um, relief in it is uh, worrying about and thinking about things that aren't there. Um, it's almost 100% of the time what prevents you from just relaxing. Yeah, the classic Domrado line of there are no alligators on the floor. There are no yeah. mafia bosses knocking at your door. Yeah. There's nothing that is an imminent threat, threat to you right now that is worth being scared of. Yeah, and so whether or not anything is worth being scared of or not, that's a different question. Right now, in your immediate vicinity, there's nothing dangerous to you. Yet, we still feel scared. We still feel that danger. Yeah, so once you uh, wake up to that, is that there's no danger here, now you're just left with uh, the hindrances that you have in this moment. Mm -hmm. Maybe you're bored, um, this is boring, or that's, that's kind of restlessness. Uh, maybe some sort of you feel sluggish, you feel tired, you don't feel very awake. Um, that's sloth and torpor. And then all of these hindrances, um, now that we've actually gotten down to the real problem, because we stopped proliferating about all these other problems, we've gotten down to the real problem of I feel dissatisfied right now in this moment. Um, now we can deal with it. Now we can start to change it and practice to change it. So, yeah, it's not just about coming to the now, um, which a lot of teachers might teach. It's about coming to the now, and then now that we're in the now, we ha we can see what's dissat what's really um, the root of our dissatisfaction, rather than thinking it's something else that's causing us dissatisfaction. We can see sloth and torpor. Torpor. We can see restlessness. We can see um, creating an aversion right now, and we can start to uh, not just seeing what triggers us, seeing the things that the word in psychology is used often of triggers, right? These things that we really don't like, and they get us up in a state of fear and distress and trigger trauma. That Buddhism is not just seeing them and becoming aware of them; it's about actively taking the effort to decondition them. Yeah. 
yeah so um we literally that's why people stay in it that's why people stay in their in their conditioning because they don't have proof for that it could be different i'm sorry guys i have to go thank you very much all right it's always great have seeing you Veda. have a good time thank yeah. you bye Coming bye, along. bye. Yeah, so um, uh, to uh, wake up to the moment and then and then uh, actively change um, the dissatisfaction that we're experiencing. Um, there's tools, there's ways, um, there's options. Um, there's a lot of different options. So it is kind of like a, a sports practicing a sport. Like, what do you do? You you. You strengthen your weaknesses, and you um, and you and you uh, take advantage of your strengths. So you you really um, use your strength to your advantage, and then you um, become aware of um, the weak points, and you you uh, strengthen them at those points. Um, it's the same way with experiencing more. Um, pleasure in the body, um, uh, more wholesome thoughts. Uh, we see where the, the problem is. Um, rather than just thinking all of it's the problem, we, we, we find the problem and we change it specifically and uh, surgically. Um, and then uh, we keep doing that. And at first, it may be, oh, there's a problem. You may be like you're playing whack-a-mole. Um, <laughs> It just keeps popping up. <laughs> That's a great analogy. Yeah. So, so, uh, but uh, you know, how do you got? You just get good at playing whack-a-mole, and boop, got it there, got that one, got that one, and then um, you become really good at whack-a-mole, and uh, so you develop the skill, irrespective of how many um, hindrances are popping up. And really celebrating when you whack that mole. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Ah, you find joy in it, you know? Yes. It starts to become, yes, I got that one. Yes, I got that one. Whoopee! So, yeah. So, <laughs> you know what? You're having a good time. And you're actually yes. enjoying yourself. So, um, I think that's a good nut to end it on, unless you have any other thing to bring that up. That's great. As always, everyone's invited to come join. Just a bunch of friends uh, informally chatting. Uh, brothers and sisters in old age, sickness and death. Uh, everyone's welcome, whether beginner or expert or whatever. Just come and join and hang out. We're just a bunch of friendly friends. All right, man. Well, it's good seeing you. Yeah, great seeing you, Scott. See you next time. Yeah, bye.